so eventually I got to the point where it was, guys, it's you or me, right? I, I'm not going to continue to be in business. You're welcome to buy me. Here's the offer I'm giving you. But then they tried and said, no, we think it's worth this amount. And I said, well, great. Then I'm a seller. If it's worth that amount, buy me. Phil Tillman is a corporate man turned entrepreneur. To him, this is proof that an entrepreneur can learn the skills and doesn't have to be born that way. Phil believes he sleptwalked through his first 35 years and only woke up to his real life at the age of 35 when he started his first business. A single clause in his shareholders agreement led to an unfortunate situation that cost him millions of dollars. So, he put his personal wealth on the line to save his business from the grip of a listed entity. In this episode of It's Not Over, Phil discusses his decision to get divorced and sell all of his assets to start a business which was nearly taken away from him at a ludicrously low price. I don't want to keep you waiting any longer, so remember, it's not over until it's over. Welcome back to It's Not Over. I'm your host, Nick Haralambas, as you should know by now. I am sitting with a friend of mine, Philip Tillman. Philip is not what I call him. I call him Phil, so I'm going to do that through the episode if he's comfortable with that. Phil, welcome and thank you for joining me. How are you? Thank you very well. It's lovely to be here. Awesome. Okay, so... I have heard some of the stories about your business. You've got an interesting entrepreneurial career. So I actually want to start there because your bio covers it a little bit, but you you don't believe that entrepreneurs necessarily have to be born. You think that they can be made. And that is basically because you are a turned entrepreneur. So tell me a little bit about why you started this business and went the entrepreneurial route and what the business is. Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, I started my entrepreneurial career at the age of 35. I backtrack a lot. I was a sportsman through school. I thought that's what I wanted to do. So I did a sports degree in order to be a sports teacher. Quickly realized there's not a lot of money. You'd have to be very dedicated to the children. And, and I, I realized I was a little bit more selfish than that. And so I went into corporate. I was a salesman for kind of 14, 15 years, and I worked for big organizations. And by context, nobody in my world, I was the son of a military family, and nobody in my world had ever owned a business, didn't know anything about equities, putting money into a stock exchange, or, or anything of the like. So the concept of opening my own business was was completely and utterly alien to, to me. And so, you know, the corporate world and having a third party decide what you were worth and telling you what your salary should be and that any growth was required was to hop from company A to company B. And this was my norm. I moved to South Africa at the age of 30. And South Africa is a very owner-driven country, lots of small businesses out here. And I encountered a lot of people who I thought, um, not arrogantly, but confidently, if they can do it, I could do it too. And at the age of 35, I, I remember one day thinking, fuck it, I can do this, but it takes me giving up where I am and decided to to cut, cut the reins. And so there was nothing entrepreneurial about my upbringing, about my nature, about my education whatsoever. And I do remember speaking to one of my old bosses who's highly entrepreneurial. And in fact, he recently got, got awarded a huge award out of New York for, being, for building some of the big software companies currently today. And he said, no, you have to be born. And, and I kind of took that, you know, as, you know, that's surely that's the way it is. And, and now I completely disagree. Many of the characteristics that make an individual successful are can be learned, can be taught, can be adhered to, can be copied, most importantly. And, and I consider myself one of the things I'm best at is copying other people. And that's really kind of what I am, a carbon copy of many other people I've met. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I also held the view for very long that I was born an entrepreneur and it's it's the only way that people can be. And the more people you meet, the more you realize there are different versions of basically every persona in the world, different versions of an entrepreneur, an engineer, a chef or whatever. So why would it be that you have to be born? So I really like that approach. I want to dive into this business now. So what was the moment that you were like, it's this business. This is the one. This is the time. Now it is. Let's go. So I was sitting, I did a, an MBA class. I mean, the joke is, how do you know if somebody's got an MBA? And the answer is, of course, they'll tell you. They'll so tell you. I was sitting at an MBA class uh, and it was actually the entrepreneurship class halfway through. It was a two-year course. And we had to do a one-minute pitch on a, on a business. So we were forced to focus on something and you had to pitch this to the class. I did my one-minute pitch and I thought that was my fuck it moment. It's like, that's it. Like if if why not today? And that was my why not moment. And my pitch was to be able to distribute and have exclusivity or expertise exclusively in a specific area of SAP software that nobody had really done. I had never seen the software. I'd never met anybody from the software company. I just knew there had to be a market for this. And if there was, I would trust my ability and work ethic to get out there and sell it. Um, and again, that if somebody else could do it, I could do it too. And that, that was my, my screw it moment. I had to, to sacrifice a few things. So I was married um, at the time and I was in a relationship with a partner who didn't give me the support I needed to be an entrepreneur. And, and that for me is one of the absolutely critical things is that your partner does absolutely give you that. And so I got divorced. I liquidated all of my limited assets into cash on the grounds that I figured I need cash to help start a business. And the only thing I owned was a car because I knew I had to see customers and I had to get from A to B. So I bought a car and everything else was in cash so that I could do, do that. And that was my, that was my preparation for, for entrepreneurship. Wow. I mean, I appreciate the very binary approach that you took to this, right? Sitting in an MBA, screw it. I can do this. Okay, screw it. I'm going to get divorced. Okay, let's just go deeper and sell all my assets and put it all into a business. I mean, whether you feel like you were a born entrepreneur or not, that's the kind of action that a born entrepreneur would make. Well, indeed, but entrepreneur means bearer of risk. And so of all the other characteristics people attribute to entrepreneurship, it actually means a risk taker. And I would accept that risk taking is probably the primary function, albeit you can inherit a hundred million dollars and still be an entrepreneur, right? But if you start a business and you put a million dollars into it, you're still putting that million dollars at risk. So there is, a, you know, there is no reward without some level of risk for this. So I had to do that and use the word binary and that's a fair statement, but the binariness comes from ignorance because I didn't know anything else. All I yeah. knew was I had to be able to survive and pay rent and so on, and that that took a it took a runway, and the cash would give me the runway to do it. Incidentally, I didn't need any of the cash in the end, wow. and again, that was a learning that perhaps, perhaps such a draconian measure wasn't required. Actually, you don't have to get divorced and sell your house, but again, I didn't know that. Although, I mean, I like the idea of the burn the ships model, like. I'm going to burn all my ships. Anybody who doesn't back this vision, I'm burning those ships and this is the way I'm going. And actually, maybe I didn't need to burn the ships, but the act of burning the ships pushed you forward in the way that you like, I had no option. So there you are. Now you're here, which is a really nice segue into jumping forward. So I want to cover what the business actually does, how you make money and how many years the business has been going to today. And then we can dive into the situation that you want to describe for my listeners. Sure, by all means. So we are a distributor of third-party software. I won't go into the specifics of who they are, A, because I don't have their permission, but B, but I don't think it's relevant, is that sure. we 
Um, again, I'm based in South Africa, but this is true. There are companies just like us who do this around the world. We found some really, really good software that wasn't the kind of software like, like a DocuSign or a Monday.com that you're just going to subscribe to. It involved having to be sold. So it has some kind of complexity of enterprise element. Approached the company and said, guys, can we please distribute this software on your behalf? And uh, in a geography that wasn't core to them. And they said, yes, we do, uh, happy to do that. And we successfully got that on an exclusive basis on the grounds that we'll, we'll guarantee a certain amount of sales activity and resources. You have to make sure that we're not competing with anybody else when we do it. And they, they agreed to that. And so we distribute third-party software, which I, I often, you know, when I have new starters, I compare that to being a secondhand car sales company because all we do is sell something that somebody else, and therefore 90% of our DNA is, is sales. Now, I'd argue that most people, 90% of most people's DNA is, is, is sales. And it's interesting, a company, a global organization like SAP actually has two CEOs, a CEO of the company that develops the product and a CEO of the company that distributes and executes it. And these, wow. these two are completely separate. And, and I think that's lovely recognition for the fact that even if you do make your own product, there has to be a very separate sales organization. And having a sales background, that's, that's what I was good at. So, so we sell third-party software and we sell it on a subscription basis. So we're very lucky to be in the, in the business model that is annuity revenue based. And the layman example to this is something like Netflix. You subscribe, albeit they do it monthly, we do it on an annual basis. You know, you subscribe to something and that every year we have to make sure they love their software. One of our values is called preserving our wow. Every year the customer has to say, wow, I'm going to pay for this again, plus inflation. So 5% inflation, whatever price increase there will be. So so our, our business model is, is entirely getting landing new customers, getting them to adopt our software, and then getting them to renew. And as a result, about 80% of our revenue is software renewals. So we've just got Amazing. to make sure that we're embedded and, and, and done. It takes a long time to get that up and running, a lot of investment. But if you take a long-term horizon and if it costs you... So Netflix used to quote that it cost them 1.07 times their first year's revenue for their new customer. But of course, from year two, three, four, five onwards, it's just, you know, pure pure money that they've just got to maintain. And so we're very lucky to be in that maintenance phase where we've got a lot of customers and we just have to make sure that they're happy. Can you give me some high level numbers that you're comfortable revealing? How old is the business? How many staff you have? How much turnover? Whatever you, you feel like you can reveal. Sure, by all means. So we so we've been doing this for about about 15 years and we I mean, we started at one. We're now up to 76, which sounds really grand, but actually I would love to be able to get the revenue we've got off five people. So please don't think that that's a boast. <laughs> On the contrary, you know, some of the metrics in, in software businesses is about revenue per head, and I don't think we yeah. do particularly well. So on an absolute level, um, our revenue, depending on the exchange rate, is between about seven and eight million dollars a year of gross revenue, um, and we're very lucky to make kind of EBITDA numbers, kind of twenty-five to thirty percent of of that, given it's quite a high-margin industry. Yeah, I mean, software industries are a dream on that front, eh? High margin, relatively low staff. I understand that your cost per head. I mean, I, I remember seeing Google's revenue per head is like in the hundreds of thousands or one of those. It's just bonkers when you look at it like that. Okay, that's good context. So now I think I've got a clear idea of what your business does. What I want to dive into is why you're on this show. So talk to me about the near-death business experience or conflict you want to help us work through. Hey folks, Nick here, and I'm interrupting this fascinating conversation, and I know that that can be irritating, but I wanted to ask you to do me a small favor that will help me in a huge way. 
please right now stop and go and subscribe to It's Not Over wherever you are listening, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google or YouTube, then leave a rating and review and turn on notifications. Every subscriber and every rating helps me keep this podcast trucking along. Now, back to the knowledge bombs. So your context of the question is a near near business desk ex- experience, but it, in fact, for me, it was worth. It was near wealth death experience. Like it was okay, everything great. gone in in this, and it was a really really simple mistake. So when I was out originally, you know, I quit. I'd quit my job. So I didn't mention, yeah, kind of when I got divorced, I also quit my job. So, so I was out there, I'd quit the job and I was looking for investors to help me because I made the mistake of thinking that I actually needed investors to do it, which perhaps in hindsight, I certainly needed the support, but not the money. Um, and so I got in bed with a company who I'll keep anonymous, but I got in bed with a, a, a company who was, who was led by a specific individual in truth that I was kind of partnering with, but it was the company. And of course, you know, they had the experience. So they drafted the shareholders agreement. And in that shareholders agreement, one of the the piece of advice that, that I would give is in that shareholders agreement is so much of one's future wealth and control ability. And fundamentally, business only comes down to control and economics. Right, those, those are the only two things you negotiate when buying or selling a business. How much of it do you own and who has control? And, and when we were doing the shareholders, shareholders agreement, I was doing business. So we effectively started a new code together and they held their shareholding in a company. And in the new code, the shareholders agreement stated that there was a tag along, come along clause. And also Nick, remind me of the words when you have first option. A first right of refusal. Yeah, it is. There's a specific word. I can't think of pref, it. Pref, pref shares. Pref shares. Uh, but, but a first right yeah. of refusal. And so, in other words, in this new co, if I wanted to sell, they could. They would be the first buyer and vice versa. And, you know, that kind of makes sense. Can you what just I, unpack tag along and come along clauses just briefly? Sure. 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 So, uh, a tag along and come along clause is really the protection of a minority. And the purpose of that is that if a majority shareholder, let's say a 70% shareholder, says, I'm going to sell my business and I want to sell my 70%, well, the 30% shouldn't be able to stop them. So the come-along clause says I get to, or sometimes it's called a drag-along clause, is that if I sell 70%, I can drag you along to the sale and you don't have a choice. You have to sell at what I'm selling at. A tag-along is the minority's protection to say, well, hold on, you're selling 70%. I want to tag along as well, right? So you can't sell your 70% without me selling it. So it really allows shareholders to be able to to align what they do. So it's a protection for both a majority against the poison pill of a minority and a minority against the majority's decision to kind of and relatively standard in an investor's shareholders agreement. Like I've I've seen them a lot. I've signed a few of them myself. So they're, they're quite common. So, so extremely standard, or albeit quite overlooked. You know, if one yeah. doesn't know what you're getting into, you'd you'd think, well, I'm actually I'm getting in business with this person, and I agree. And in fact, my story is about who I was getting into business with, mm-hmm. and and who I trusted. So, so it had the the cool. tag along clauses and preemptive rights was the word I was after. So it was about the preemptive, preemptive rights, rights of who had the rights yes. to buy it. And so in the new co, we both had preemptive rights. In other words, if I wanted to sell, I had to sell to them, and vice versa. What I didn't think about was their company. What happens if somebody bought my partner out? So I'm in partner with ABC company, and I didn't get a clause to say, but hold on, if you sell your company, 
I don't want to be in business with John Smith or mm. uh, whoever else is going to buy that company. I'm in business with you and your ethics and so on. It's not like it was a listed company that I got into business with. You know, it was a small private entity, reasonably speaking. And so when you're doing that, you're inevitably getting to bed with the person who's running that. And, and I was very aligned in that respect. But that company had a number of other business areas and some big listed company came along and said, well, actually, we want to buy you for one of the other entities and went through that process. And we were really, you know, they didn't care about us uh, at all in terms of the main acquisition. Uh, and I spoke to the person who was doing leading that acquisition and they said they're keeping their eye on the prize, which was this, this other main business. So mm -hmm. as that acquisition went through, effectively my partner got bought out, albeit it was the same entity. The businessman that I was dealing with and I'd effectively set up business with was gone. And I'm now dealing with this listed company and my board meetings, which would happen kind of once a year and were reasonably informal and very strategic and, and one could deal is I'm now having board meetings with a CFO and chief operating officer of a listed entity. And you've got these people who come and record the meetings and make notes. Suddenly I turned from this small entrepreneurial organization to this, this big company because I was now theoretically a division of a big company. And because they were listed, there was inherent reporting requirements and compliance requirements and all these things in that respect. And so I categorically did not want to be in business with them. I never would have chosen to be in business with them. And so eventually I got to the point where it was, guys, it's you or me, right? I, I'm not going to continue to be in business. You're welcome to buy me. Here's the offer I'm giving you. You know, then they tried and said, no, we think it's worth this amount. And I said, well, great. Then I'm a seller. If it's worth that amount, buy me. Oh, no, no, no. We don't think we won't buy you at that rate. <laughs> well, then exactly. So it's not, it's not a real value. So eventually I, I was troublesome enough, which was my objective, that they thought it's a decent price and we get rid of him. And, uh, and they took the offer. And when they, they, as a listed company, they effectively bought this company with a small division like mine. Um, at a certain price and they attributed a value. So when they sold me, they actually had to declare how much they'd gained, which was millions of dollars. So I missed one clause, which cost me millions of dollars. And, and I'm pretty sure had I said to the guys I got in business with is, look, I'm getting into business with you. In the event that you sell the majority of your shareholding, your shares come up for offer at a price and I have the right to buy our shares in our new code together to be able to do it. Mm. And I think that that would have been reasonably expected. Um, and uh, so if you've known right? to look yes. for it or if you've if known, I, to, if add it known to add it in and it's called a grandfather mm. clause where, when you do mm. a shareholders agreement, you're doing a shareholders agreement in the context of your company you're setting up. But if that company is a, if one of those businesses is actually a company, well, they can do anything they want with that company. And effectively you're then in, you're in, and in business with somebody that you'd never intended to be in business with, mm. which could never have been the intention of the parties when they were contracting. And I think if somebody at the beginning said something to the effect of, okay, in the event that you change shareholding, there, you know, you effectively put your shares up for sale automatically and the mm. preemptive rights clause could be, could be done, I would have bought those shares at a fraction of the price that I ended up buying. Wow. So not only did I end up buying that those shares from them at, at a very hard price, I paid a multiple of 10 EBITDA, right? When I, that's how Whoa. much I wanted to get away from them, 10 times EBITDA, but, and you can imagine that that's why they made this. But to give you context, they at the time were listed at about 20 times EBITDA. 
so company uh, relatively it was actually a good deal to their 20x absolutely so they actually had to write it down as a loss because theoretically they lost some ebitda (laughs) right and they went from a valuation of 20 times ebitda but i was very small in their context and i think getting rid of me was a was a preferable outcome but the bottom line is that cost me absolutely millions and 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 i do look back and and it frustrates me a bit that i was ignorant um and and i was ignorant but you know, one could be ignorant of many, many things. But I mean, when I was sitting there thinking, I'm going to buy you or you're going to buy me, I mean, and I ended up buying, I debted to, to, to effectively get full control back of my business for this listed entity. I debted myself fully. I had to put my entire property up as, as collateral so that they could, could make a crap load of money on a business that they never intended to buy in the first place. And, you know, I, I was at extreme risk for those first two years. And, and if I hadn't grown a lot very quickly, you know, that would have been a hell of a leverage on the on the business. Um, wow. There, there is so much to unpack there. But the first question in my head is, why didn't you just let them buy you out? First of all, because then I would have had to go and start again. And of course, I knew I could grow the business more. And it's much easier to grow a business like 25% a year of an existing business, let's say $5 million, you know, is a hell of a lot more than starting again to get to those numbers again would have taken a very long time it was a nice business i had the relationships and they weren't offering the price i was offering they would have offered a fraction of that price probably okay Um, so it wasn't going to be an exit that would have retired you you wouldn't have been able to retire off that money i i didn't think of it that way but no i certainly wouldn't have retired and this was when i was kind of mid 40s so certainly retirement wasn't on the on the cards um Mm. You know, and of course, I loved what I did and do. Right? Of course, I love what I do. I love what I did at the time. And, and so, you know, the, you say there's a lot to unpack. You know, the biggest thing for me, of course, is when you're doing a shareholders agreement, you have to cover every eventuality. And not, you cannot, no matter how much you end up spending on that lawyer, um, then it's worth it. And I was on an MBA and there was a lady on the MBA who was a lawyer and I got her to help me, albeit it wasn't her area of specialization. So in hindsight, asking a friend for a freebie makes a lot of sense when you're asking for office space or a secondhand computer or something, but not for legal advice for your shareholders agreement that you might only use in 20 years time. That could yep. potentially cost you, cost you many, many millions. Yeah, I've, I've learned this lesson in spades in my career too. And there is this inherent excitement when you're starting a business with a partner and getting into bed. You just see positivity, optimism. You see the big numbers. You forget about the divorce. And mm. I'd like to advise founders, plan for the divorce. Hope it never comes, but plan for the divorce. And the truth is, the second you have to refer to your shareholders agreement, that it's over. Like when you have to look at those clauses, the tag along, drag along, the chances are one of you needs to leave immediately. And I actually have a funny story on this exact thing. I'm quite pedantic about these clauses because I'm ignorant about them. I don't understand them. So I read them in great detail. And one of my first businesses we raised a ton of money for, and I did not particularly like my co-founder's wife. And I put in, I insisted on including a clause that if he was to die for any reason and she inherited his controlling stake in our business, that I would have the ability to buy back the shares from her at a market-related price because I would rather spend my money than have to work with my co-founder's wife or ex-wife at that time. And we thought about it. And I said, well, you can have the same because I'm not getting into bed with her. 
uh, metaphorically, I, that he knows I was building a business with him and at no time did I want to build a business with her. And it ended up getting put through, but the, that was my first exposure of this kind of situation. It's the same, actually. So you're selling to an individual and that individual theoretically has succession by way of death and inheritance or otherwise. And in a company, it, you know, it was foolish to think that there isn't some kind of succession, that they would either change their directors. In fact, yeah. it should have been a change of control clause, not even an equity change. So, for example, if the, if you know, management changes, I, yeah. you know, preemptive right should be available because, you know, the manager of a new company. And, and I do think when I get into any contracts now and people get heated, the answer is, but in three years time, I'm not, I might not be dealing with you. You may be long gone and I may be dealing with some American commercial entity who only looks at the bottom line and cares 100%. nothing for, for the relationship we built. So we have to build a contract in that regard. What an important point to raise. It's not even just about shareholders agreements, it's about contracts and service level agreements and anything that you're entering into with your partners, your clients or whoever, that they might be gone. And then the only record that's left is the legal contract you have all signed. So you better be happy with what you've signed. Otherwise, mm. you're in trouble. And it's yeah. funny, I was talking about this with a friend last night. There is something that I learned about contracts that aren't signed very late in my career, later than I should have. And it's a really, really simple and stupid and obvious test. You can delete things in contracts. You can just put a line through it and send it back to the party and let them argue that it should go back in. You have the right to change a contract. Just because mm. a lawyer on the other side has sent you something doesn't mean you can't question it. And oftentimes, founders, entrepreneurs, you think, oh, this client's just going to pay me. Let me just sign what they give me. No, you've got to read it and you've got to take out the things that are uncomfortable for you and let them argue to put them back in. You have that mm. ability. No, I, I agree with that. And, and let's talk about the impact of, of that. So when yeah. we bought them out, we and the reason is that impact is highly quantifiable. In, mm. in When we bought them out, we effectively had a five-year loan structure, a kind of a combination of senior mezzanine debt to be able to do that. And we estimated based on our current income that it would take us five years. So what was I, what I was agreeing to at the time is that my next five years work would be to reward them for having this little entity of a company that they didn't even intend to purchase. You know, and that, that's a very painful idea to go into. And my mindset from an entrepreneurship perspective was, well, at least I'm buying my freedom. I wouldn't want to work in a listed entity. I'd be in control. And there's a certainly merit to that. Now, luckily for us, we grew and we paid off all of that in two years, which is a great result, but it still meant for two years I was paying them. There was still a two-year period where I effectively worked to their benefit. And that still comes back to the fact that that grandfather clause, you know, I, I didn't consider those eventualities. I'm interested in the mental fortitude that it required from you as a sole founder. I mean, you don't, you don't have a co-founder in this business to think that long-term, to back yourself that deeply, to park the frustration and anger that you have for the people who are kind of treating you like a little fly in their shoe, and then to still go, fuck it, let's do this. I'm going to build this business and I'm going to retain it. What is going on in your brain at this time? I mean, it must have been difficult. You can't tell me that it was easy, surely. So it, you say easy. I, I had a lot of very sleepless nights worrying about how this would, would work out. But the biggest sleep was night, night was that it didn't work out. And my way of looking at it was that and there's lots of different type of entrepreneurs. I'm a freedom fighter in that I didn't want to be told what to do. And I really wanted to kind of have my own freedom. And so I certainly knew I was buying that. And my, in my mind, at the end of five years, I knew I owned it all. I had no debt from the bank. And, you know, 
so in my view, that time horizon was five years. And I have to say, in a business context, I, I think the millennials today think five years is a long time. It's not. It's actually, it's not even medium term, right? It's actually the short term. And so, you know, uh, my argument was, if the status quo is true, it only takes me five years. And just like when you buy a house, you say, guys, we're going to have paid this off at 25. By the time I'm 55, I'll have my paid off house. And that was my, I look on worst case, that was my worst case scenario. And I knew anything over and above that was was the benefit. And, and it turned out to be that way. The most gratifying part, incidentally, was that now being without them and not having that, that other company that I partnered with in there was, it fundamentally changed my life on a freedom level. I just... I operated differently, I thought differently, and I just genuinely, for the first time ever, I thought previously I was in control, but because I had this other shareholder, I had some duties of responsibilities and reporting and so on. But when I, when I was the majority shareholder, for the first time, I felt in control. And I now coin a phrase that I had to be in control to not need any control. For those control mm. freaks out there are listening, is actually, once you're in control, you don't need any control because you are the final arbiter of decisions, right? No matter what happens, you decide. And as a result, it's very easy to give control away and to delegate to people. And that was, a, that was something I wasn't expecting to experience. That was a real game changer for my life. Oh, that's really interesting. I suppose it's like uh, when you have all the power, power is not really that relevant to enforce because you have it all. Yes, indeed. It's like the queen goes around the world thinking everything smells like new paint, right? Because everywhere yeah. <laughs> smells fresh for her. So uh, it's like it's normal. The world smells like paint. Yeah, um, that's fantastic. So, hey, so you, right now you're the majority shareholder, but not the 100% shareholder. That, that so is you've correct. you've brought other partners in? Yes, I did. I was very lucky. I, I'd come across, I joined an organization called EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. I met a really cool businessman there who backed me, gave me some of his own money and actually really helped me organize the financing because I was quite ignorant of that. So he owns about 25%. I've got a couple of tiny, tiny shareholders and he's a completely silent shareholder. And, and so, so yes, I brought somebody into that and I enormously value that experience. And it's also nice as an entrepreneur to have a minority to consider. So it regulates one's actions. In other words, if there's something you're going to do and you think, well, I can't do it because then I would, I would negatively affect the minority, then the, pro then the reality is you probably shouldn't have done it anyway. Because if it was the right thing to do, you wouldn't be worried about the effect on the minority. And so, mm -hmm. so I, it's actually a lovely double check. And, and then uh, to give you context, I'm over 70%. Yeah. And so that last 70%, the last 30% doesn't bother me. I never, I never think if I make X amount, 30% of it's going somewhere else just mm. never occurs to me. Whereas previously in business with the other company, I, I counted every penny. I, I, I resented That's so interesting. everything that went. Yeah. And was that even with your first partner, not post that partner leaving with the listed entity, even with your first partner, you were counting pennies. So yeah, that, was. that's interesting to me. What was the mental shift? Let me tell you, when my one of my business partners sold my business to another company behind my back, I became quite gun shy. I, one of my nickisms now is trust people until they give you a reason not to. So how did you overcome this, holy crap, two shareholders back to back have now screwed me over why would you just let a third one in? I think because I, I was the final arbiter. I, I had complete control, governed only by the shareholders agreement. I also consider myself to be quite ethical and I knew I would live up to the commitments I'd made. And the shareholders agreement is very, very clear around you know what you can and can't do. Um, and again, he was a very experienced businessman and and made sure that his minority rights were protected. And again, he's never had to to use that at all. And I'm I'm the final arbiter on the decisions. So as a result, I don't feel the lack of control 
or anything similar. I just think about how do we grow the business and what are we going to do? And I really kind of use him as a as a balancing checkpoint for questions and, and thoughts. I want to jump back now to the period of disruption. How big is the business? How many years in are you? Like, give me some context because sure. what I want to know is while this is all going on, you are distracted as a founder, Completely, as a CEO. Yeah. So what does it do to your business in that context? So it was kind of seven years in and it was, it was, we probably had about 30 people and effectively I had to gather them around because they were used to a certain status quo and we would share offices with this other company that we'd partnered with. So they had, there was a lot of, this is the way we do things at the moment. And I had mm. to get people behind me and say, guys, this is what we're going to do. I can assure you on the other side, it's going to be great. We're going to be able to do a lot more stuff that I want to be able to do, but I couldn't. But, and you said it was disruptive. That's very interesting because it was disruptive in my personal context, but not work. So I came to work every huh. day and did the same stuff, but I would be up at three o'clock in the morning doing contracts and worrying about those things. But I never let it influence anything that's happening in the business. And the other wow. side of annuity revenue business is that if your customers keep renewing and it's 80% of your revenue, it's very hard to disrupt a business like that. It has inherent revenue protection, which was also mm. true going to COVID, right? And Good so, point. you know, there's, there's a lot of protection inherent in that. Yeah, let's talk about that um, personal disruption because you say it very easily. Oh, I was, you know, 3 a.m. I was just looking at contracts and whatever, but mm. I don't know many entrepreneurs who would have the guts and the consistency to sleep less so that they can <laughs> spend money that they didn't want to spend on a business, buying out a business they didn't want to be in business with in the first place. How did you, how do you, how do you wake yourself up to do that? How do you drive yourself to do that? Firstly, I didn't have to wake myself up because I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep. Like, okay. uh, yes. I, I don't know if anyone listening kind of feels the same way, but when something's on your mind, you literally can't sleep. You can't mm. stop your mind working. And the only yeah. thing to do was actually get up and go and, uh, and do something with that. You know, in terms of the disruption, I was just exclusively focused on getting this done to the point where my biggest anxiety was, what happens if we don't get this done? Like, where am I? Mm. What happens if we don't get this done and they won't buy me? What do I do? Do I just walk out, right? Do I go to the supplier who's selling the software and say, say, um, I'm actually doing a hostile takeover. I'm going to start a new business. Give me your contracts. I'll take over the staff. Right? Those were all considerations as to how one might, might go about doing it. I wanted to do it the right way. And mm. luckily they did agree to do it the right way. Um, and did you, were you able to, for all these possibilities, did you have to pull in experts? I mean, how the hell would you know how to do a hostile takeover? So, well, no, again, I suppose I probably would have made some of the similar mistakes before. So luckily my the business partner had done a number of, of acquisitions and disposals and we had a we had a lawyer doing the sale agreement, but otherwise, no, I think the rest of it would have been on my own. You know, though, again, if it's your business and you run it, you know all the variables and the key control points and the pain points, and I know what would have had to go with me. So again, this was a very anxious time is the right word. And certainly that played into the personal life, into relationship, you know, being constantly distracted, probably all I spoke about for 99% of the waking hours and all I thought about for, for the others. And so, you know, the enormous relief when it came back to it, when it finally got signed was, yeah. was key. And let's, I mean, you mentioned it, uh, the effects on your personal life, the distractions, the obsession that you're describing an average day for an entrepreneur. What did it do to your personal life? I mean, you've got the one divorce behind you, so you could start this business. Now you're seven years down the line, like your kids, your partner, what happened? So I was certainly incredibly distracted. I think my partner took a huge toll, albeit was very supportive at the time, but but took a huge toll. Certainly my, my health took some toll. I just, you know, because I'm concentrating, I certainly didn't get the exercise in that I wanted to get. I, I made a very mental kick in 
when when I took over the business or when I completely bought them out and started on my own, I was working so hard that I you know stopped doing the exercise that I needed to do because I was just mm. putting in the hours to do this. I do believe work ethic can overcome many things, and uh, you, know, you know on a personal basis, I, I felt like I just had to keep going every day. You know, if I just kept going, we'd eventually get to the end. You know, and they were mm. frustrated. To give you context, it was we're dealing with a company who, for the valuation model and how we purchased used kpmg to do it so now we're negotiating for an accountant at kpmg and oh. they they had this lawyer whose whose first name was cabby and we call him crabby because it doesn't matter what you did he was famous for just the most ridiculous clauses which were so <laughs> biased it was absurd you know and it gave me enormous anxiety that the, mm. the way in which we're negotiating and we couldn't actually raise money because our business was too small when you go and raise money from banks they want to lend you crazy amounts of money. They're not interested in small transactions. So we actually had to restructure the deal and get them to agree that. And again, just lots of anxiety in different ways to be able to do it. And mm. I suppose testament to how difficult I was to work with, they kind of bent over backwards to make sure that, that, that it happened. No matter what happened, they got the same net amount, which was, mm. which was absolutely key. I would just like to make an observation on your level of obsession about your work. My question actually was, what did that do to your personal life and your partner? And we've ended up fair at your point. lawyers. Okay, but fair point. No, 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 no. I, I mm. think that's I think that's the point. That that it's a it's a relevant observation that I'm making because I think you know my partner and she deals mm. with this too. That when we're when you're in the space of everything is about to be taken away from me then nothing else matters. Like, because that's what you actually started this by saying, this wasn't a near business death experience. This was a near wealth death experience because mm. you leveraged your house. You did everything you could to win this business back. And then I think actually you shouldn't be distracted by anything else. This is the only thing that mattered at that time, right? It was the only thing that mattered. Yeah, absolutely. I'll agree with that. And while I haven't had the specific conversation, it, it certainly took a toll on the relationship. Um, yeah. Yeah, which eventually yeah. didn't make it, whether or not I, I consider myself part to blame for that. And Thank you. I think it's session. sure. I appreciate that. <laughs> I've, I've not. This is not the first time that this has turned into therapy on the show. But I, I do think that's an important observation, broadly speaking. And you and I have discussed this offline too. That this is an all-consuming vocation that we choose. It is mm. a thing that you do. That the people who participate in your life have to understand that most often they're going to be second, and it's a, it's a hard thing. I'm now in a partnership with a lady who absolutely sees it that way, kind of completely accepts me for who I am and what I do and the time I spend to do stuff. And certainly, probably for any career person, specifically for an entrepreneur, I think that's a prerequisite and certainly wasn't true in my first marriage. And the reason I had to exit it in order to have the ability and the space to be able to make this happen. Yeah. So while I may not advocate for divorce, I certainly advocate for somebody kind of letting you be who you need to be in this context. 100%. I couldn't Indeed. agree with that more. And I've, I've been lucky to have that for the last 17 years. So I get it. Mm. I want to jump Nick, back. What I'd, I'd mm. like to come back to something that yeah, sure. we kind of touched on quickly, but one of the things I learned from, from the whole process of, of kind of how I got into the original business, the partner I was with, and the MD of that partner that I got into business with said to me, there's no such thing as an equal partnership. It just doesn't work. One of you has to have 51%. There must be a dominant partner and it's clear who's making the decisions. And now being the person with 51 or more, that's certainly the case. And I understand that now, but getting into an equal relationship partnership is, is a disastrous, or is a very difficult thing to navigate because you're going to constantly end up in deadlock and who's the dominant yeah. party in that. Um, yeah, I couldn't and, agree and going more. forward, I've always made that very, very clear that I'll never be in a minority position 
you could make investments and that's a different thing entirely. But if it's a business but you're in as an operator, as an operator, I don't ever want to be. And if I invest in companies, I make it very clear guys that I never go up to kind of give them 49, but it might be up to 30%, but it's mm. very clear who's in control and who controls mm. the money flow. Right. That's, you know, that's key. Yeah, I think the more extreme way that I've been starting to think about this recently is that there is a mistake in the world, especially with employees at these very woke companies that businesses that are capitalistic and profitable by nature are democracies when they're not. Your business is a dictatorship, mostly run by a board or a CEO. And if you're not on board with that, you're at the wrong company. The thing that triggered this in my head was Apple employees refusing to go back to their multi-billion dollar office. And Apple was like, okay, leave then. Because it's a dictatorship. It is not a democracy. And the truth is you can't have a dictatorship with equal partners. A dictatorship has one majority partner. That's the way it is. Indeed. But in the political world, you can't have a benevolent dictator. <laughs> in the commercial world, you can. Like you, can. you can be in control yes. and be, be nice and have a great culture. Yes, absolutely agree with that. Um, and one of the so, offspins, if, if, I mean, you asked for my social media post, which I don't personally do, but on yeah. a work level, we do tons of really cool, fun stuff and spend our money on that. And that was mm. enormous value to me. I couldn't do that in my previous organization because of who I partnered with. They didn't place value. I place value on doing that. So, you know, if you look at our social media from a company, we spend, you know, pancake day, Halloween, any reasonable day, yeah. you know, we try and celebrate as much as we can. So yeah, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, again, and that kind of answers one of the questions I was going to ask you is you mentioned that you just thought differently without the original partner. You just brought this new person in and everything unlocked. And that's a good example, I suppose, of what you mean. Are there other examples of as a leader, specifically as an entrepreneur, how having this freedom changed the way you built this business? Um, so, so first of all, being, being alone changed my personal life completely because I, felt, I genuinely felt for the first time I'm actually in control of all aspects of my life now. I can choose the business wow. does anything. I can spend any amount of time at business. I can do it from wherever I want, and I can spend the money on anything I want. So that's, that's a very liberating position to be in, which is ironic because I'm not a spender. And, but from a business perspective, absolutely. I take the view that kind of when you're 60, you're not going to sit there and remember the deals that you did. You're going to remember the people that you worked with, who had a baby, who got married, those kind of things you're going to think about and care. And work has got to be more than just a place that's going to make money. So the relationships that, that we have at work and the things that we do in the work context, but should be, should be lots and lots of fun. And the work should be fun and it should be a great place to be able to be. And you know, we try and kind of echo some of the cool places to work with pool tables and table tennis tables and, and all that kind of stuff, while also just having a, a cool environment, just a fun place to be, while making sure that people come in and do their work in the hours that they need to do it. Um, but, you know, if I'm an athlete, I could still have fun, but I know I need to train 10 kilometers a day if I'm going to run a marathon. I need to get my 10Ks in, doesn't mean I can't have fun outside of my training. And so the ability to kind of do that. Uh, and I often get questions, we've got a head of operations, Phil, what's the budget for this? So I told you there's not a budget. It's just supposed to be fun and mm. uh, you aren't going to spend a fortune on it. But that's no, I love that. Object. So Phil, this has been really interesting. And usually I'll end off with a very specific question that I think I know the answer to, but I, I want to ask you anyways, what have you taken away from this experience that you'll carry with you for the rest of your business life? If you're talking about the experience of kind of my near near wealth death experience, there's a great book by the founders of Intel, which you can't buy digitally for some reason. It's only in paperback called Only the Paranoid Survive. Right. And great book. And for me, it's that, is that you need a good lawyer, you need an accountant, and to know that everybody, if you're successful, 
everyone's coming for that piece of your success, whether it's a competitor trying to do to look after that, whether it's another shareholder who thinks they deserve a bigger share of the pie, whether it's an employee who thinks that they should be paid twice as much, is that you know one must protect yourself. I was too nice to too many people for too long, and this got me in this position. I was scared of confrontation, and I wonder if I would have even brought up the topic of that clause you know, for me when I was first founding the business. Now, everything's on the table for discussion. You must have a lawyer that points these things out, and you must have the candid nature to be able to discuss all those those things. And certainly mm. the young version of me wasn't that person. Do you still feel paranoid now? Yeah, absolutely. And we absolutely must. Yes. I mean, I'm paranoid about whether our biggest customer is going to renew or not. Paranoid about one of our top employees is going to find another job or emigrate. Like we're going to have a mass emigration at the moment mm. to be able to do that. I'm paranoid whether the company we distribute is going to say, oh, Africa, that's the next frontier. We want to come direct into Africa. And everything I do and think about is about how do we protect about that, protect those things from happening. Because without those things, we are a great vehicle, which will just keep running. It'll just keep going along well and will grow if we don't have these major, major incidents to be able to do that. So, so yeah. I, Amazing. I'm, paranoid I, I think that's a very natural and again it's a learned thing right if somebody yeah. has if you've lost something and i lost a lot paranoia i think is is the key you know yeah and they say you can lose your hair out of paranoia so i'm sure you know what i mean i do intimately very paranoid <laughs> or very bald yeah, it, 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 in, indeed Phil, this has been really insightful. The very specific details here, I really appreciate it. So in closing, tell people where they can find you, follow you, buy from you, or just promote your business if you'd like to. Floor's yours. Thank you. Wasn't ready for that question. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Philip Tillman. There's not too many of those. In terms of our business, very unlikely unless you're in the risk management and internal audit soft, uh, space that you'll want our software. So don't worry about that. And, and otherwise, I, I hope, I mean, that if anyone listening is teetering on entrepreneurship, please try and think to yourself, why not? And look at the people that have done it. Very little is special about them, except the fact that they did it. And the only thing between a life of complete freedom and control in yourself and that is just doing it. You don't have to give up your job and, and get divorced to do it. There's many, many ways to do it. And I would encourage you to, to do that. That is fantastic advice to close with. And Phil, as a friend of yours, I'm really happy to say that for you and your business, it's not over. Nick, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here.